Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning, Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. Uh, President Trump directed his former attorney, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress about the Trump Tower project in Moscow. That's the big Breaking news this morning, uh, in addition to, of course, the fact that the government is still shut down. Uh, We have a lot to break down, including the president's move to cancel House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's overseas trip to Afghanistan. Pretty much we'll break it down uh, and I'll do that with the help of my friends here. And that includes the great Peter Ogburn. Good morning, Peter. Friends is strong. Friends would be strong. Oh, wow. We're working together today. Oh. I'm kidding. I don't of know when, when Jamie got, came back into the <laughs> studio. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. It's so good to see you. So good to see I you. I haven't too. seen you yet in the new year. I haven't seen you in the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. But no, by the way, no, no more Happy New no Year. No more Happy New Year? No, you can't do Happy New Year. You get like. Don't my... you get until the end of January? That's generous, I think. It's very generous. There are a couple of rules. Like, there's some people say, like, oh, if I haven't seen you in the new year, then I can still say that Happy That was my new rule. Year. Yeah, but what if I don't see you until March? That's, yeah. That would be silly. It's a judgment call. You know what I think you get? It's a judgment call. You know what I think you get? One week. One week. Okay, okay. Well, One week. <laughs> very intense rules from Peter about the <laughs> etiquette of Happy New Year. Yeah. We've got Ray Rogers as well over here and, of course, Cyprian Bolding, making sure we all look good. Hello. There you go. See? Just, now we know it's real. Now we know it's real. Um, what's not real, of course, is uh, any end to this shutdown in sight. So we're going to have to talk about that. Plus, of course, the latest in the Russia revelations. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. You just mentioned the shutdown. There are a lot of government workers with a lot of free time on their hands because they're not working. Well, that's not the only thing in their hands. Pornhub is reporting a spike in traffic here in D.C. because of the government shutdown. 
Pornhub, of course, the website that well, it's pretty self-explanatory. Pino gang. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they have their uh, they they run their numbers right of like who's watching, how much they're watching, what they're watching, things like that. And they said that there has been a sharp increase in porn viewership and also a shift in the hours here in D.C. So, in other words, people are not going to work. Uh, they're staying at home. And watching porn. And they're watching porn instead of working. So, uh... Who said America wasn't already great? America, yeah, exactly. America's already great. <laughs> uh, hey, you got big plans this weekend? Um, well, the snow's coming, isn't it? So we'll have to see. Well, we had some snow last night. There's, There, there might be some snow this weekend, although it looks a little bit warm. But, you, but this Sunday is going to be a very special, uh... Not weather-related event, but mm-hmm. a, the, a, a fantasy thing that, you, that we love to see. It's a supermoon. It's a supermoon. There will be a total lunar eclipse that's going to happen on Sunday that will coincide with a supermoon. So the moon and the earth and the sun will line up this weekend for a total lunar eclipse. Wow. And, of course, it's going to be closer to earth uh, so it's going to be a supermoon. This is pretty cool, That's right? pretty cool. So when is this supposed to happen exactly? It's supposed to happen Sunday night. Sunday, Sunday night. night. So it's not only a supermoon, it's a total eclipse. And they said the eclipse is going to last for about an hour. So it's pretty long oh, wow. for, for an eclipse. It starts early Sunday night uh, into Monday morning. Depends on where your location is. You need a cereal is. box to see this one. You, can you do don't it. need to look through, <laughs> yeah, a whole thing. You, you, you don't need the special glasses for this one. Uh, and again, it depends on location. So mm. make sure you go online, check it out. There are lots of different resources to tell you what it looks like uh, in, in your neck of the woods. All in all, the whole thing will take about three hours. Uh, one other quick story, by the way. How about this? A world record great white shark was featured off of the or was seen off the coast of Hawaii. Oh, uh, no. They got some pictures of it. Some divers got some pictures of it. They estimate that the shark is twenty feet long, two point five tons, and about fifty years nope. old. Nope. Horrifying. <laughs> that is no the stuff thank of nightmares. You. I'm gonna stay out of the water. Jaws is real. They've named the shark Deep Blue. Oh great. Sure, yeah, whatever. Deep blue sea. This is the Bill Press Show. Alrighty, on this Friday morning, the news uh, never stops, and we have so much to unpack, especially this blockbuster report from BuzzFeed News that President Trump directed his former attorney Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about the Trump Tower project in Moscow. Now, let's just sort of recap for you Uh, what we knew about that project to begin with. Uh, The president um, has claimed that he has no business dealings in Russia, nor did he have them during the course of the campaign. Of course, through Michael Cohen's cooperation with special counsel Robert Mueller, we learned that that was not, in fact, true. Uh, It turned out that Cohen, who at the time was still uh, overseeing a lot of the then-candidate Trump's professional dealings, was, in fact, in negotiations over a possible Trump Tower in Moscow, and Cohen actually lied to investigators. He first said that the conversations ended in January of 2016. It turned out that they went on well into May, June of 2016. So really right before uh, Trump was 
about to clinch the nomination. Um, and then we also learned now through this report in BuzzFeed that when Michael Cohen lied to Congress about the timeline of the project, as well as what then candidate Trump knew, the involvement of his family, Michael Cohen did so at the direction of the president. This was not when Trump was a candidate. This was when he was already president of the United States and he directed his former attorney to commit perjury. That is the allegation at hand in this report. As we know, Cohen cooperated with the special counsel. He was already sentenced to several years in prison. Uh, We already have some lawmakers saying, certainly Democrats in the House, that this warrants an immediate investigation. Don't forget that in the article of impeachment against former President Nixon, this was effectively one of the central charges that he urged or compelled witnesses to lie in what was a clear attempt to obstruct justice. I mean, Peter, it really doesn't get any closer than this. No, no, this is direct. I mean, part of the problem that I think that this Russia investigation has had uh, is it's it's been pretty clear to people who actually pay attention to this stuff. But I think to average Americans who don't digest the news cycle the way that we do, uh, it's been hard to sort of show this was collusion. This is what the president himself did, because you see all these different characters, Paul Manafort and Carter Page, and you hear all these names and news uh, reports. But it's it's been very hard to say Donald Trump did this, and it is against the law. Mm-hmm. And this is the closest that we've come, without a doubt. I think this is the most damning report uh, in terms of convincing and telling and showing the American people that Donald Trump broke the law. Right. And you because you think about Michael Cohen and uh, he kind of became a central figure, not because of the Russia investigation, but because of the hush money that was paid to some women who alleged to having an affair with Trump before he was a candidate many years ago. That included adult film actress Stephanie Clifford, also known as Stormy Daniels. It included Karen McDougal, a former playmate. Um, and, you know, Cohen later said that he made those payments, which were a violation of campaign finance law, at the direction of candidate Trump. And that was still a, you know, major revelation that for anyone else could have been the end of his or her presidency. Now, Republicans sort of tried to couch their reaction in, well, you know, he wasn't president when this happened. You know, a lot of us have broken, everyone has broken campaign finance law. You'd be pretty much have to indict you know, every member of Congress, every politician. And, th- and they were really trying to hide behind the fact that this happened before he was president. Um, and, you know, the investigation is ongoing. We'll see. This revelation now about him directing Cohen to lie to Congress, this is as he was sitting in the White House yeah, as president yeah. of the United States. And, and, and that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. And it's also worth noting that, you know, when the sentencing memo was released by Mueller's team uh, recommending you know, leniency for Michael Cohen because of his extensive cooperation. Um, th- th- there was revealed right then and there, not just that he had lied about the Trump Tower project in Moscow, but that Cohen's assertion was the reason he lied was because he was coordinating his response with the White House. So the implication, of course, was that, you know, people in the Trump administration, maybe the president, 
had told him not to tell the truth uh, when he testified before Congress. But that was an implication. You know, it could have been someone else at the White House. It could have been someone else in the administration. This is really directly saying, no, it was the president who told him to lie. And, you know, if if this isn't the moment where they at least begin some sort of impeachment proceedings, I mean, even just the first groundwork, right, because they're going to have hearings and that's how that's what the investigation would ultimately culminate. in if they believe there's strong evidence of obstruction of justice, then people will argue that Congress is really not doing its job. I mean, now Democrats are in the majority. So I think the expectation is if this isn't enough, then what what would be? Yeah, I mean, that. I don't want to give Trump any credit here, uh, and I don't think I'm doing that. But every other, quote unquote, scandal that he's faced, he's had the daylight to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's all that Republicans need is they just need that tiny little sliver of daylight for them to give cover to the president and what he's been doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see a whole lot of daylight here. I, I just mean, don't see a lot of daylight. This I mean, is one of those things that's like he was the sitting president and he instructed someone to lie to Congress. The bar is not that high for impeachment, right? Absolutely not. It's and really I, not that high. This is definitely, I think this definitely reaches the bar. And, you know, the report in BuzzFeed also suggested that um, Trump received, and this dates back to the campaign too it's not just you know when he was president but that he received as you know as many as 10 updates about the trump tower project in moscow so he can't even argue that he wasn't really familiar with you know the negotiations and where they went it also implicates his children uh (laughs) familiar suspects ivanka trump donald trump jr eric trump they of course you know, have been in big parts of running the Trump organization. Donald Trump Jr. effectively um, and Eric Trump Jr. have been or Eric Trump, not Jr., have been taking that mantle uh, since the president, uh, of course, you know, came to Washington. Ivanka works in the White House along with her husband, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. So, you know, this is a family matter, suffice it to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll but, say. But Ivanka's spokesman is out there already saying, oh, Ivanka was very minimally involved in the project. Oh, yeah. yeah, she she really wasn't like she, she you know, really wasn't oh, part of these sure. conversations uh, no, trying to never. trying to distance uh, the president's daughter from what is clearly a seminal moment in this investigation. And, and look, a Trump Tower project in Moscow, why does it matter? Because the whole time that then candidate Trump was saying, I have no business dealings in Russia. Uh, you, we, we now know that Moscow was actively interfering in the U.S. presidential election with the intent of sowing discord, of influencing the election in Trump's favor. And there's been this big question as to whether or not there was any quid pro quo. Like, what was the incentive, right? Well, what yeah. was the incentive here for people in the Trump campaign or the president, certainly now then candidate Trump, to partake in, you know, what now we know was a very extensive operation. And so we can't go so far as to say that this establishes that there was a quid pro quo, but, you know, it comes pretty close. Yes. You know, a billion dollar project that would have had a multimillion dollar penthouse for Vladimir Putin. Yeah. I think that that reeks of at least some sort of you know, backhanded deal, you know, you give me something, I'll give you something in return. Let me ask you a question, because you know these members of Congress better than most. (laughs) 
Uh, for better or worse. I was going to say, <laughs> what a great distinction. For better or worse. Yeah. Uh, I, I know. I think that a lot of people see what's going on, but they also recognize nothing's really going to happen because the Republicans will give him cover. Uh, and the only thing that's really going to break this wide open is if you get some Republicans to stand up to Trump and say and call for, you know, his resignation or how or his impeachment or whatever it is. Right. However, we get rid of this guy. Yeah. Uh, and I've this whole time contended that that's just not going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. But but look, at the same time, there was a moment with Richard Nixon that Republicans broke with Richard Nixon. Sort of. Sort of, <laughs> so, sort of, but there were enough that broke, right. no, not necessarily as a party, uh, 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 yeah. in, in, as a whole, but there right. were enough that broke. Uh, I, and I don't know if this is going to be enough to get Republicans to break. I in, just don't think so. What do you think? Well, the challenge is that Republicans have effectively tied their fate to Trump and they've been all in to the point that it's almost comical to play that game now. Imagine if President Obama did X or imagine if this happened during the Clinton administration or imagine if Hillary Clinton had been president and this revelation came forward because it uh, there's just Trump in the eyes of Republicans and then there is everyone else. As much as they say no president is above the law, they have clearly already, uh, through their actions, implied or, or not even implied, but shown that they believe that Trump is above the law. Uh, And so I think if you talk about Nixon, it's interesting, though, because the Republican Party, even at the time of Nixon's resignation, was very much behind him. And, and, you know, same thing that you hear now that he was this was a setup, that it was, you know, a witch hunt before we could before you had a president constantly tweeting. It was a witch hunt that he was treated unfairly, that Democrats essentially in Congress were just after his out after his head. So so you know, I think that when you look at the base, the Republican base still being so overwhelmingly behind Trump, their frustration has more to do with oh, we want a border wall, we still haven't gotten it. Sure, uh, we haven't deported all these undocumented immigrants. It's not it has nothing to do with Russia. So so you know, I think that the Republicans in Congress still look at that and make a calculation based on that. That's why the government is still shut down, frankly. And you know, let's just say Democrats begin impeachment hearings uh, this republicans still control the majority in the senate so democrats could easily vote to impeach the president but then they wouldn't have two-thirds of the senate to convict i, if, I mean if they uh, can you foresee how you get to that math if you look at the balance uh, and the majority that republicans have in the senate now the only way is if they really think um and Mueller's report could, will also be a key part of determining sure, this sure. that it's, it's just so blatantly out obvious and that they would lose you know considerable majorities and the next presidency if they stood by him i well you know one of the other things to think about when you when you look at what's going on with the republicans and trump right like so during the richard nixon stuff uh the conservative party were they were able to sort of say uh this is an aberration. The conservative party is strong and we have these core beliefs and we will survive this because Richard Nixon did, he sullied our good name. And you look at what George W. Bush did with debt and the wars 
and all this other stuff, and you still had a faction of the conservative party, the Republican Party, that would say this again is an aberration. This is not who we stand, what we stand for as a party. Uh, but now with Trump, the mask is off, and you see that Trumpism really is conservatism. Mm-hmm. And I, as a party, I think they have to cling on to him like a lifesaver because. Uh, they're at a point now where they can't really say, like, hey, look, our values don't represent Trump. Uh, we represent something bigger and greater. And they can't do that anymore. Like I said, mask is off. I mean, he's this is the Republican. He's party. redefined the Republican Party in his image. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what are they going to do even if he he did resign or he was impeached or he was or simply that he lost reelection? Pretend, about- that, pretend that this never happened. Yeah. I mean, that's probably what they would want to do is is this, you know, prop up someone was going to suddenly, uh, you know, act as though they never changed their platform on immigration right. and they never changed, you know, their views on everything under the sun from trade to obviously law and order to to yeah. to all of the various ways in which the president has challenged the conventional norms of the GOP. Think about this up until now, because there was some recent polling that actually shows that Donald Trump is losing some support among his base. But up until this particular moment. Uh, Donald Trump, and this is important to remember when you think about what the Republicans are doing and how they're moving forward, he is the most popular president within his own party that we've, that the Republicans have ever seen. Yeah. The approval rating for Donald Trump within the Republican Party is higher than any other Republican president that the Republicans have ever seen. Right. And so that informs a lot of the different moves that these uh, that these Republicans make. Right. And the president's efforts to undermine the investigation uh, and and to discredit the work of the special counsel, the FBI, essentially trying to uh, fundamentally alter the public's perception of the institutions in this country. Uh, that has all been laying the groundwork, really, to protect himself and to inoculate himself if and when there is a report uh, alleging that he committed crimes with respect to uh, the Russia investigation, whether it was actual collusion between his campaign and Moscow or whether or not he obstructed justice as president. And so, you know, really, I think that the support for Trump is now so baked in, uh, at least within the Republican Party, because they very much do agree with him that he has actually been able to convince them that this is all a witch hunt, even though there's been no evidence to support that claim. And several people who were either senior members of his campaign or part of the transition or part of the administration are have and are still cooperating with the special counsel and have been charged with multiple crimes, many of which happen to be lying to investigators. So some people are actively going to jail for lying to investigators, which is, you know, the uh, crime, of course, that Michael Cohen committed. And now we know, apparently, the direction of the president, Adam Schiff, the uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, tweeted about this BuzzFeed news story, the allegation that the president of the United States may have suborned perjury before our committee in an effort to curtail the investigation and cover up his business dealings in Russia is among the most serious to date. We will do what's necessary to find out if it's true. 
So House Democrats vowing to take action, certainly a departure from Devin Nunes, the former intelligence chief, close ally of Trump's, who somehow was able to oversee the House Russia investigation despite having been part of the Trump transition team. Um, But, you know, Democrats obviously recognize that this is a major turning point. Up until now, they, too, had sort of said, well, we're waiting for Mueller's report. You know, we're going to subpoena any relevant witnesses and documents. But they sort of wanted to test the waters and make sure they weren't getting out ahead of Mueller. Now that's just an entirely separate uh, conversation because this is just something that cannot be ignored. We'll obviously revisit this story. It's going nowhere. Uh, (laughs) Later on in the show, senior justice reporter Ryan Riley is going to join us uh, at the top of the hour as well. So, you know, he, of course, will have a lot to say, in part because I told him he better have a lot to say. Um, <laughs> Good. Meanwhile, the government is still shut down, Peter, and it's been almost a month. Yeah. December 22nd was the day that lawmakers let funding lapse for the government, causing a partial shutdown. Now, you know, lawmakers is maybe even being a bit... Uh, disingenuous because really this stems from the president uh, demanding funding for his border wall and thwarting what had previously been a bipartisan compromise that did pass the Senate to avert a shutdown and punt a debate over border security and immigration until later. But then, of course, the president, through a bit of a hissy fit, said, no, I want $5.7 billion for the wall that I campaigned on that has nothing to do with, you know, appropriations for the government. Weirdly enough, we were told Mexico would pay for it, but he insisted that Congress give him the money and uh, Republicans in the House back in the days uh, when they still controlled it. uh, They then, of course, passed the bill that would have funded the wall that went uh, didn't have sufficient support in the Senate. And here we are. Here we are. Almost one month later. I want to put you on the spot again, Mm. um, because I think a lot of people are watching this. Uh, again, I'm not sure if this has really sunk into the American consciousness as a whole quite yet. I know that we watch the news and we talk about this a lot, but I'm not sure that it's really reached peak sort of fervor yet around the country. But part of it is because we've seen so many of these shutdowns before. I'm not sure that people realize that this one is a lot different. But there are multiple different ways that this could end, right? Right. Um, but I think all of the ways that are most likely for it to end are now sort of uh, wishful thinking, let me put it that way. Like, Republicans aren't going to force a vote on this, and they're not going to have a veto-proof majority, and Donald Trump's not going to act in good faith to reopen the government to try and figure out border security, and Democrats don't appear as though they're going to cave on any on any uh, on the uh, wall. border wall. <laughs> so what breaks it? Well, so what this is actually this, what this makes shutdown? this shutdown different. Um, I mean, I'm not overstating this, Peter, when I say that I have talked to, you know, aides on Capitol Hill as well as just people on the outside, including contractors and federal employees who have a very real concern that it will take some sort of disaster or emergency uh, that will will be found out to stem from the government being caught flat-footed not having had enough personnel uh, to uh, avoid it, uh, that would then be 
the moment that the impact of the shutdown is really realized. And, but then who blinks? But, but, well, well, then it's one of those moments where, you know, they would ha- almost have to reopen the government. But that's if, it, I mean, can you imagine if it was something, but the, what I mean to say is, and I'm not trying to be dark here, but God forbid something had, there was an incident with a plane sure. or that there was an outbreak, you know, because there are food inspections, food and drug inspections not being up to par. I mean, that's that moment where, well, it would still be a blame game, frankly. Yeah, um, that's what I'm getting at. But, I still but, think it would be like, heaven forbid there was a terrorist attack here in America that uh, would immediately turn into Donald Trump saying, well, this is why I demanded border security. If we had this border security, we had this wall, this would have never happened. Never mind if that's you know a true statement or not. Uh, that That's what it's going to turn out to be. And then will Republicans break with him to reopen because I don't think that I don't even think that would be enough to get him to see the, the light of day most likely not uh if if past this prologue but you know we they're just the fact of the matter is that there is no end in sight and to your point um there's no indication uh that Democrats will cave on the wall because why should they I you know they and they have the upper hand to say well re- Republicans in the Senate already voted for a bipartisan bill that would have averted a shutdown, that would have funded the government and didn't appropriate money toward the wall. And that's actually why there are a lot of Republicans who, namely Mitch McConnell, remember him, who have been essentially sitting this one out, who've just who've said they stand by the president, but really are not out there litigating this in, in much of a public way because they already know that they're on record having supported a bill that did not deliver funding for the wall. And so now they can't turn around and say, oh, yeah, no, we do think the government is worth shutting down over a wall because they already clearly said they didn't think that was the case. Um, Meanwhile, the president, of course, is not backing down from his demand. And I think some people just wonder if at some point he'll declare a national emergency and that way this will just be kicked uh, over to the courts and then while the courts are dealing with whether or not he has the authority to build a wall by declaring a national emergency, then they reopen the government in the meantime. And he says, look, I did everything I could. I took it to the courts. And uh, he can then kind of frame that as some sort of victory. The only other way is if there's some sort of money for border security that includes fencing, that it becomes a game of semantics where he can still say, no, it's a wall. But that was sort of the way that this fight played out in the past, where every time a government funding bill would come around, there was a there was a threat from the president that he would demand money for the wall. And then he would just get general money for border security and sort of say like that that was effectively, you know, not necessarily the wall, but that was sufficient. Uh, That didn't happen this time around. So, again, you know, no resolution in sight actually. You know, the, our next guest, uh, Julia Grace Brefke, is a Capitol Hill reporter at The Hill. And so she will know all about, perhaps better than, than I can uh, sit here and try and predict, all about the shutdown politics and where they might be headed from here. So stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and Julia Grace will help break it down for us. Keep on watching and listening to The Bill Press Show. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday. 
morning, day 28 in America of the partial government shutdown. Roughly 800,000 federal workers are currently without pay, either furloughed without pay or forced to work without pay. The Trump administration has also called thousands of workers back uh, because clearly there is a very real concern that essential government functions are not being met. Uh, State Department's scrapping up whatever funds it has also to try and pay some of their employees and call them back to work. We're going to break a lot of that down, including whether or not there's going to be any sort of resolution with Julie Julie Grace Brefke, Capitol Hill reporter for The Hill, who you can also follow on Twitter at Julie Grace B and read her work at thehill.com. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing all right. Yeah. Another day, government's still shut down. Another day. It's it's starting to feel like Groundhog Day at work, where I get up every day, I write the same House passes continuing resolution that's going nowhere in the Senate story. It's it's really crazy to think about how long this has gone on. Uh, Peter, I don't know what people are telling you on Twitter, but I hear we have a little bit of feedback. Yes, indeed. Lots of comments on Twitter where we are tweeting at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, John Davis says, uh, Peter, to what you just said, we could be look. this is scary. We could be looking at a police military takeover. Gosh, I really hope not. Uh, Mike Reinick says the real reason that Donald Trump canceled Nancy Pelosi's trip to Afghanistan is because she would have then spent more time in a war zone than Donald Trump has. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, also, Ron says, is Kevin McCarthy the kind of guy that would remind the White House that Pelosi and company were traveling on military transport? does not appear as though Kevin McCarthy would be that kind of guy. Uh, if you have any comments on any topic at any time, remember you can find us on Twitter at BP Show. Uh, do tweet us your thoughts, whether it's on the shutdown, whether it's on Michael Cohen and uh, this allegation uh, or report in BuzzFeed News that alleges the president directed Cohen to lie to investigators, which would be obviously a clear uh marker of obstruction of justice democrats in the house already promising at least some sort of inquiry uh, to follow up on that bombshell report meanwhile the government shut down the estimated total cost of the u.s economy is over 25 billion dollars billion as trump loves to say um julia grace yesterday the president abruptly canceled a CODEL, which is a congressional delegation uh, comprising of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, as well as Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Elliot Engel, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, to Afghanistan with a stop in Brussels. Um, and it was in retaliation uh, for... The State Pel- of the Union. State yeah. of the it's- Union. Uh, Pelosi said not, not canceling the State of the Union suggesting that the president push her back or deliver in writing yeah postpone or deliver in writing that was my favorite bit <laughs> she knows she knows how to twist the knife just yeah. a little bit that it's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> give us the cliff notes no one no one needs to see another primetime speech by the president um that was pelosi's <laughs> suggestion not mine um so so okay first of all what I mean, we're, it what? was quite the visual with the bus going around yeah. and everybody hopping off, and then there was one reporter on a scooter chasing after the bus. It was a, it was a <laughs> lot. 
<laughs> was it you? Please it tell me that me. reporter was, it was you. It was not I gotta, me. I, I saw it on say. Twitter and I was like, I, I applaud that effort. I think it was yeah. Joe Perticone from Business Insider was on, right. on the uh, bird scooter. Kudos. <laughs> kudos to anybody who would hop on a scooter to go get that story. Creativity like that. right yeah, there. I love it. Yeah. And so, I mean, where does that leave us? I mean, <laughs> I think both, I mean, clearly Nancy Pelosi and Trump are at war at this point. Negotiations are going nowhere. It's, uh, I mean, I think at this point it's going to take something major to break the government shutdown, like all TSA employees going on strike. I think eventually it's something along those lines, some type of disaster where they just kind of have to do something. I mean, they're being urged by by the New York Times editorial board, by some lawmakers, including Republicans. I think it was Isaacson from Georgia who said they should go on strike, uh, which is illegal. Uh, Public employees are not uh, prohibited to, to go on strike. And so it's really bizarre that you know, some lawmakers are saying that the way out of the shutdown is for the people who are furloughed because they can't get to a resolution is for those people to break the law, putting their jobs at risk. And that's what it'll take for for them to get their act together. Yeah, because it doesn't look like Mitch McConnell is going to bring up any of the CRs that have passed the House since Democrats took over. So it's uh, I, I mean, unless he decides to have some type of <laughs> complete. I, I mean, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Where he just completely backs down on. Can we I, I talk about how absent so dug in. Mitch McConnell has been? Because so he, you know, everyone has been playing that clip from a few years ago when he said, "I'm the guy who gets us out of shutdowns," and he has been. I mean, he's he's been out there a few times to say that Republicans stand uniformly behind the president. I mean, his own conference does not stand uniformly behind the president. There are roughly four. Republican senators, a growing list, though, saying we should just reopen the government and deal with the wall later. But where is Mitch McConnell? What, I, where, I, mean, like, I feel like you see every picture of him inside a meeting and he just looks miserable like he doesn't want to be there. I mean, <laughs> it's, what, it's like, I, is this, I mean, is, is this really just about the fact that Republicans feel like they have to go along with the president? I mean, I think to some extent, there it's just, yeah, Republicans trying to unite between the administration and Congress. But I mean, I've talked to a ton of moderate House Republicans at this point who think, I mean, there have been a handful of Republicans that have been willing to vote with Democrats on these CR bills, and they think that number will grow over time the longer this goes on. So I think maybe there will be a breaking point where, but at the same time, the Republican leaders that I've talked to think the Democrats will eventually back down and be like, we just need to provide some wall funding and just get this thing. So far, Democrats have been passing um, a series of bills that would reopen the government department by department, right? Mm -hmm. Is that uh, correct? And, well, I wonder, though, why Democrats would suddenly decide to throw in some wall funding when the polling shows majority of Americans blame the president. And those numbers are only growing. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, at what point do Republicans sort of see the writing on the wall? Yeah. <laughs> well, no pun intended. Like I, it, uh, <laughs> I, I think I saw a poll, I think it was either this week or last, where it was when you split up the Republicans, Democrats, and the president, the Republicans were polling, I, I guess, as far as blame for the shutdown, was relatively low. It was really the administration that was taking kind of the heat of the blame. So I'm wondering if that changes over the next couple of weeks. But it, right now, it definitely seems like Democrats are winning the messaging war. Right. Because, you know, the president's taking the blame and Republicans, um, as you know, are taking significantly less. But the president is the leader of the Republican Party. So in a way, it's like if you add his numbers with theirs, yeah, then, um, you know, obviously, I mean, they, maybe they're, they're only a bit inoculated because how Democrats now control the majority in the House. But 
Um, I mean, the president taking the blame is effectively the position they've taken, right, as being then seen by the public as not wor worthy of dragging this on any further. I mean, is this something that's going to come down to game of semantics? Is it just going to be that there's fencing as part of some package for border security? I mean, some people are talking about or it has to be a broader deal. But how could they when they can't I mean, even like keep the they government open? get a broader deal when it was all Republicans? Right. So how could they get a broader be... deal on immigration when they can't even keep the government open? I mean, so, I mean Democrats could probably have a big ask and be able to, in exchange for some wall funding, something along the lines of DACA, which I've heard floated, but that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere at this point. I mean, the Problem Solvers Caucus was at the White House on Wednesday. It seems like nothing came out of that. So <laughs> Who's uh... in the, this Problem Solvers Caucus just sounds like a riveting group of people. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's like, I think Tom Reed and um, Josh Gottheimer are the, the chairman of it, and then... I'd have to look up the whole list of everybody. But yeah, who's no, there, it's, but it's, it's uh, bipartisan, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. so there is at least some discussion happening on a bipartisan basis. But the thing is, that the communication has clearly broken down between Democratic leaders. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's especially House. after between the uh, trip and the State of the Union, I think. Uh, right, that's definitely on hold. I, I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon. So I mean, Nancy <laughs> Pelosi was asked about um, why she isn't at the bargaining table. And let's take a listen uh, to her response. What negotiating table are we not at? The last one we went to, I think, was a setup where the president pounded as he gave himself leverage to leave the room. So, so yeah, that yeah. meeting sounded like it was a doozy. <laughs> this was a meeting where apparently Trump stormed out and it's, he had banged his, according to Democratic aides, he banged his hands on the table after... Speaker Pelosi said she wouldn't support the wall, and he said, "What did he say? Bye bye." I think so. I think because that he is confirmed what, on yeah. Twitter that he said bye bye. Bye oh, bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was a meeting between the President of the United States. But she, she's and right. She's right. I mean, leaders on Capitol. So all the Democratic leaders, I feel like they've said we can negotiate on that after we reopen all the rest of the agencies. And I, I mean, with Republicans losing the House, they've lost so much leverage. And at this point, right. it's with either side caving, it's going to look bad on them from an optics standpoint. So I think. Right. Just... But look, they, they, there is no actual negotiations com they're coming from the White House. Like they're they will only accept one thing. One Money thing. for the wall. Money for the wall. Yeah. The wall. That's it. And, and so there really is, I mean, what she was saying is th there's no negotiating going on. Until they come in and say, okay, fine, we'll give you some money for your wall, he's not going to even entertain the conversation. So it's not like there's actual work getting done here in these meetings. I mean, I'm confused in part because Republicans controlled both majorities of Congress up until this month. and yeah. And at no point... Did they send a bill to the president's desk that began construction of the border wall with money appropriated by Congress? There was like that last minute bill right before Christmas break where after the Freedom Caucus gave their speeches on the floor the night before, they decided to bring up a bill that had the $5.7 billion instead of taking up the Senate passed bill. And uh, that kind of just kind of changed the course on everything for them since the bill was going nowhere in the Senate. Right. Didn't have support. Which the Senate, which still under is under Republican control. I mean, I know they need crossover from Democrats because they need 60 votes, but I mean, they never actually made a real, you know, strong effort in the two years that they were in the majorities, which is part of why I think Democrats feel like they don't really need to budge because they know that if the Republicans were not themselves in favor of appropriating billions of dollars toward yeah, a they, wall that we were told Mexico that whole big, uh, would pay for. <laughs> 
because they had the whole big immigration fight over the summer where it was the compromise bill and then there was the good lot bill with all of that in there and yeah it was going nowhere so it's I don't see it getting easier now that it's split chambers for the White House to get what they want. I mean, meanwhile, the impact on federal employees is enormous. So we have some clips um, that kind of address the ways in which people have been affected. Um, I, I think here's one of the most striking, and it's uh, from the Northeast Regional Vice President of Air Traffic Control talking about the ways in which this is hindering uh, the work of the people who literally control, uh, you know, the airplanes that are flying, you know, every day. Yeah, which is scary. You're asking us as if we were a surgeon to perform surgery in the operating room, but taking away all the nurses and the technicians and the people who assist them. I mean, that's only a little bit terrifying. That sounds bad. Is that bad? (laughs) That sounds really bad. (laughs) <laughs> Doesn't sound, and that and I feel like like CDC and like food inspections that all freaks me out a lot too. I feel like there's a lot of things people aren't totally that aren't super on the radar that are right. I mean, there could be an outbreak of E. coli, which you know happened even when you had normal staffing. So like, imagine <laughs> how widespread this could be uh, without the appropriate people. I mean, you have another federal employee who spoke about because that's the other thing. I think people think and you know, there's some people who don't realize that federal employees are not all just wealthy people. I mean, in fact, yeah. the overwhelming majority of them are not. But actually, I, so, I think it's going to affect the economy. People's credit scores are going to be going down. People aren't going to be able to pay their mortgages. It's. I, yeah, mean, I mean, these, yeah. I mean, right. and, we like, were already. Like, suggestions that they're like, you can barter for things or like, talk to your landlord about this. It's. it's I, mean, I mean, well, there's one woman who literally yeah. uh, talked about having to either pay for her medical treatment or pay bills. I mean, here's what she had to say. You have people that are being evicted. You have people that are going without insulin and going without the care they need. And as a person with a disability, the threat to me is I get put in an institution because I can't take care of myself. I mean, this is the very real effects that um, the shutdown carries on the people way, who it, are missing yeah. paychecks. I yeah, mean, and to your point, we were already in a pretty fragile place economically. Uh, I mean, you look at what happened in December. It was a terrible month for the economy. And and it's just continuing into this year. And you have 800,000 people who are not getting paid. They're going to be binging on credit. They're, some of them are being forced to work without pay, which means that they can't go make any other money. It's insane. Where does yeah, this go? I mean, at this point, I mean, I was going to say... Um, I mean, you know, eventually there's going to be repercussions for politicians on on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like this goes on long enough. It's, I mean, I think, I mean, 2020 is a long time away, but I feel like they've all got to be hearing it from their constituents back home. It's, uh, at some point, something's got to give. Right. I mean, people also, you know, I think sometimes associate just, uh, and, and I mean, they said because of the federal government, obviously, is is you know, we're we're here in the nation's capital, and people sort of you know, they kind of make an association that these are all government bureaucrats, but actually, these are people all across the country, working for departments and agencies, working as contractors, um, in in all kinds the of contractors don't get the back pay either jobs, and that's a good point. So Congress passed back pay, which it typically do, but that doesn't apply I, I to I don't con- think, um, I mean, I'd have to double check on that, but I don't think it applies to contracts. No, it, I'm pretty sure it does not. Um, and, and even that back pay, they re- the federal workers don't get that until the government reopens. reopens. So, <laughs> which we right now don't know when that will be. Um, you know, they missed their first paycheck, I think it was last Friday. 
Yeah. Um, but there's no end in sight. Um, I mean, do you do you think the president declares a national emergency? Is that the I mean, out it here? Sound, it seems like he's kind of backed away from that from everyone I've talked to. It feels like that's going to be I think he's been more in that set a bad precedent down the line. Um, so, I, I mean, it, I think it still could happen, but it's looking less and less likely from everything I've been hearing. Right. So it kind of seemed like the solution out of it where he declares that, they pass a CR, and then that goes to the courts. And Right. He can say, I did everything I could. I took it to the courts. and But the Republicans themselves were speaking out about that. Was it, yeah, not Everyone wrong? seemed to be kind of hesitant on that. I, I think I talked to some more conservative members who were like, if Elizabeth Warren or someone on the more liberal side then down the road gets elected in 2020 and then... Something uh, like she declares a national health emergency for Medicare for all. That was something that was kind of a concern on their end. So I think mm. they were, I guess, uh, what could uh, kind of come down the line if, if they took that route. And do Democrats feel pretty confident about Speaker Pelosi and her handling of the shutdown? And they, they seem to all be pretty unified um, on that front right now. I uh I mean, we saw a handful yesterday vote for uh, there was a motion to recommit the Republicans on the CR yesterday that would have provided the first or uh, would have provided one paycheck for all the furloughed workers that um, a handful of Democrats, I think, uh, had voted for ahead of the CR. But um, like most of them felt like that was a political stunt. So there's some kind of chaos in the House. Yeah, floor it's, yesterday. Uh, chaos. yeah it was <laughs> it was quite a scene. But, you know, I was expecting a low key day yesterday morning and then it was uh <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the drama was unfolding. But, you know, even as we talk about Speaker Pelosi, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also now known as AOC. Um, She's been I mean, marching over to Mitch McConnell's office. She, oh, yeah. Katie Hill. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, had this to say about Nancy Pelosi. She is just the strong woman that we need right now. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that she's holding the line. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty remarkable turnaround. From her, from her uh, campaign, yeah. um, we didn't. We wasn't, you know. First, she su- suggested she wouldn't support uh, Pelosi for speaker. Then she just wouldn't say how she would vote in the end. Uh, she she did vote for her, did she not? She or, did. She did. Yes, she did. Yes, that was. The- uh, you know, I, I said during the whole speaker, quote unquote, fight because it was never really never a fight. Really. We it never really is. Was, but <laughs> yeah, we, we knew how this was going to end uh, before it happened. But you know, look, I, I think it's probably. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was absolutely the right person for the job, but I think it was fine for people to question whether or not we needed new leadership in the Democratic Party as well. Uh, all that being said, you know, I, I mentioned the quote yesterday, the Will Rogers quote, you know, I don't belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, there have been two times that the Democrats have actually been well organized and been able to hold the line, and it was now and then the last time that Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House because she managed to keep it together and push through Obamacare in a way that no other speaker would have been able to do. So Democrats have that problem by, you know, with like staying organized and staying on message. Nancy Pelosi does not have that problem. And love her or hate her, she knows how to make deals and get things done. 100%. So. 100%. And prolific fundraiser and remarkable ability to keep her caucus in line. Now, you mentioned Obamacare. I mean, the stimulus was another example. And then think about under Republican control, because it's actually sometimes even tougher when you're in the minority, because then your members feel the heat. And uh, she was able to keep them very much in line when there was a shutdown of the government in 2013 over Obamacare. 
uh, to say no. You know, <laughs> this is this is this is not. This is obviously a Ted Cruz's pet project, and, and ensuring that they didn't break and, and join with Republicans in that fight. The tax bill. I think there were no Democratic votes for the tax bill. There were not. And then also keeping them in line through all the repeal and replace efforts uh, for Obamacare. So there's been a lot. I mean, that's actually often when the going gets tough. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is just so interesting because she's obviously emerged as this, as this big celebrity. Um, did get a seat on the Financial Services Committee. She did, yeah. Right. But also appeared um, either yesterday or the day before in a video supporting... Um, Primary challenges against I think was it Hakeem Jeffries with which she uh... <laughs> yes um, against well against Hakeem Jeffries uh, is she how is she being received by her colleagues on Capitol Hill I mean uh, I feel like behind the scenes I think uh, I think one of my coworkers had written on the Senate side that a lot of the Senate Democrats are kind of frustrated that she's like kind of seen as the voice of the party as a freshman member who hasn't really accomplished anything legislatively yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely some mixed feelings about her up on the hill, but uh, I guess that happens when you're a rising star, and I feel like she's kind of definitely garnered all the attention out of the freshman class. Right. I mean, I guess some of it's also, you know, I think to your point about seen as the voice of the party, you throw out a proposal like a 70% tax yeah. on wealthy Americans that, you know... It, Which, by the way, is very popular. Is So, it, it, you know, it's something that is popular, If you certainly if you put polls to uh, members of the public. But I think let's just say it, it's not necessarily going away in Congress anytime soon. Certainly not with Republicans sure. controlling the Senate Fair. and a Republican president. She does have and so that's, if that's, I guess, if that's sort uh, of... Hmm? I feel like uh, just kind of her ability on Twitter to just be able to control the news narrative and all that says anything and all that, it's... Uh, it's a big moment. And yeah. I think, yeah, the point I was making was less about, you know, um, the popularity of her proposal as much as I'm sure. You know, then that sort of becomes then the de facto platform of the Democratic Party where they're like, well, not necessarily. Um, well, look, the Democratic <laughs> Party should demand politicians that are are cut from the same cloth. Whether or not you agree with everything she says, she says them and then she defends them mm-hmm. and she doesn't waffle and she doesn't look for the middle ground. She's, I mean, I mean, look, the 70% uh, tax on mil- millionaires and billionaires in this country, <laughs> like, that is not as extreme as people will make it out to be. That is not as crazy as Republicans would have you believe. They are not coming for 70% of my paycheck or your paycheck or anybody else's paycheck that you probably know. It's the people who have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars mm. and yeah 70 percent tax on that yeah. that's okay it wasn't that long ago that i think it was like the was it the 80s 70s then uh there, there was a rate that high yeah oh back right the, i mean it's not the 70s, as a, as a sure. proposal back it's not actually sure. like completely out of uh the question and it as you know it, it is very popular if anything it's that she often becomes framed as the face of the democratic party because conservatives are singularly obsessed with her because her. i think they sort of because they're like oh there's a socialist takeover of the democratic party but actually i don't think that i think they're underestimating one that a lot of americans actually do support a lot of these economic policies um in higher numbers than they realize and two every time they attack her it actually backfires because she, as you note, she's very good at social media. I, she's, it, I mean, is a freshman kind of almost effectively managed to pull the party to a left to the left in certain ways, and just throwing the stuff out there and getting people to go talk about these proposals. So it's uh, but I, I think conservatives kind of see her as someone they can vilify in the way they do Nancy Pelosi on the campaign trail. Mm. That's a good point. And, and, but you know what though? 
It's not working. <laughs> it's not working. Well, she work is one Nancy of the most popular either, politicians obviously. in the country right now. There yeah. was a poll. I think she's got more name recognition than like five of the people that are na- have thrown their, their names yeah. out there for 2020 on right. Democratica. I think she had more name recognition than Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I mean, I think she had. I more, bet she I, does. I think she had more name recognition than a lot of. Yeah, maybe. I mean, than a lot of people, including, as you know, the like 30 plus Democrats who are about to run for president. <laughs> be a crazy primary. <laughs> right. It's going to be a crazy. Crazy primary. Um, and before we let you go, I am just going to ask you because I, I love predictions, even though they're the worst. Um, when does the shutdown end? I was talking about this to my coworkers yesterday, and this is like a totally I'm going to say March. We're going to say March. I'm okay. Say March. It's, it's uh, I mean, that is just completely my guessing. But uh... yeah, this is like the worst <laughs> office pool that ever existed. Terrible. When will Terrible. the shutdown end? But Julia Grace Brefke, Capitol reporter at The Hill. Thank you so much for joining us oh, this thanks morning. Thanks for having me. Follow her work on Twitter at Julia Grace B and read it online at thehill.com. Ryan Riley from HuffPost joining us after this break. Stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. And joining me now in the studio is a good friend and former colleague, Ryan Riley, senior justice reporter for HuffPost. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. And still here with me is Peter Ogburn. I'm not going anywhere. You're not going. You better not, because the show would fall apart. And <laughs> I'm sure you'd be fine. Let's be clear. Well, I'd be fine because Ray Rogers would still be here, as yeah. would the great Cyprian <laughs> Bolding. So yeah, competent people are still here. Yeah, arguably more competent. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's an argument. I'd say that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> we enjoy this little bit of banter, um, and I'm excited to have Ryan here, too, because, well, one, he's brought his adorable daughter, Zoe, who has currently fled the cameras, but um, we'll definitely post a photo because... She's awesome, and mm-hmm. she's very cute. I think I'd be interested to hear her thoughts on, actually, the Mueller investigation. She's got a lot of thoughts. She's yeah. got a lot of thoughts, and we've got a lot to break down mm-hmm. with you. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. You know, one of the good pieces of news, the few good, good pieces news? of news that came out uh, of last year, was when CBS got rid of Leslie Moonves, they mm-hmm. said he is not going to get his $120 million severance package. Well... As it turns out, he is going to fight that decision. He is challenging CBS, and he's going to take them to court. So this is going to just prolong the drama that has been going on 
between CBS and Les Moonves. Remember, of course, he was forced to resign as chairman and chief executive because of multiple accusations of sexual harassment. Uh, and then we found out at the end of last year, he said he was, uh, uh, CBS said they were going to deny his severance request uh, because he had violated company policies. He contends he did not violate company <laughs> policy. And thinks he's entitled to $120 million. And thinks he's entitled to that much Money. I mean, Megan Kelly got her payout, so you know. Sure, yeah, exactly. Right. I figure he's he's just got to go go get his. Uh, okay, you know, one of the things that Bill absolutely hates that I agree with him these emotional support animals. These what? emotional support animals. People. I think that dogs are great and cats are great, but people get onto airplanes with like turkey vultures. You know, they're okay. like emotional support donkey or rabbit. But if it's an what. emotional support dog, it's allowed. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Okay. But, but a lot of these other animals are allowed, too. Well, here's the problem. We're going to York, Pennsylvania, uh, where a man by the name of Joe Henney, Joe Henney, uh, went to um, a, an assisted, assisted living community. Now, Joe Henney actually used to be on TV doing an outdoors show where he talked about hunting and fishing. So when he checked into the assisted living facility, he brought his emotional support alligator. And he, of course, has made a lot of people very angry that are there in the uh, in the home with him. How is that even a thing? Well, it's a thing the way that any of these other I mean, emotional support. I guess support. I take your point. How, how do you? How big is the alligator? Oh, yeah, how big the alligator is, is not that big. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to find the actual. Uh, there's a picture growing? of it. Does but, it continue to grow? Uh, he's 14 months old, uh, so he's not that big. I feel like it, he will get bigger. He likes to be pet, petted. Okay. He likes that's to be a, loved. That's a thing that he likes cuddles. Yeah. They grow up. I think those things live for pretty long, and they grow quite large. Yeah. I would um, like to know how you, how they like qualify what's an emotional support animal but you just get like a certificate or something right it's a different deal it's a different definition to every for everybody right like there are all these different pretty good thing about this in our last stand-up special where (laughs) she's talking about how terrible it was and then said you know you walk back to your seat you know 10b or whatever it is i don't know i don't know how far they go back i've never been (laughs) (laughs) yeah right i'm not a big coffee drinker by the way you're not a big coffee drinker i don't drink coffee i only drink tea well there's some bad news if you are a coffee drinker scientists are saying the world's most popular coffee Coffee species are going extinct. Yeah. Yeah. 60% of the world's coffee species could be going extinct soon. Part of it is because the coffee culture that we have created has just gotten too big too fast. Hmm. Too big too fast. I'm impressed you have a three-year-old almost and you don't drink coffee. No. You know. Got to get your caffeine other ways, I suppose. (laughs) This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Uh, Ryan Riley, senior justice reporter at HuffPost, is here in studio. You can follow him on Twitter at Ryan J. Riley and read his work at HuffPost.com. My former deskmate when I was at HuffPost. Former deskmate. Some of you who've been longtime listeners of the show might remember those days. Um, and I, a lot has changed, including the president and as... The political landscape, and one of the things that, of course, has loomed large is the Russia investigation. And last night, we talked about it a bit at the top of the show, there was a bombshell report in BuzzFeed News that Michael Cohen, the president's former attorney, um, 
when he lied to Congress about the Trump Tower project in Moscow, he did so at the direction of the president, not yep. candidate Trump, President Trump. Um, how big of a deal is this, Ryan? Seems pretty significant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's very big. I mean, based on the reaction so far, I think that it's going to be a significant, um, you know, news event. I think this is, you know, it's, tip- it's weird with these stories. Sometimes it'll only last like a day or two. Stories that would have lasted like months in other, you know, administrations. You know, sometimes these stories will just fade away. But this one seems to have a little bit of, this one could have some staying power. I mean, this is direct. If this is true, which I mean, I based on the two reporters who worked on this, I think, you know, is a, is a, uh, I, I have a lot of confidence in them. I think that, you know, based on their reporting, it seems like this is significant and that, you know, this is evidence of a, a crime. I um, mean, and it's not only Michael Cohen, apparently, who they have the evidence from. It's like additional evidence that, you know, based on messages going back and forth. So, you know, because the, the obvious retort to this, which Rudy Giuliani has sort of already come out with, is that, you know, you can't trust Michael Cohen. Um, <laughs> Which, fair. I mean, he has, you know, he lied on he multiple lied. occasions. Yes. yes, multiple occasions. Um, he's admitted to lying. He's a, you know, admitted liar. So that is a little bit of a problem. But on the other hand, you have this, you know, supporting evidence. It's interesting, too, because you talk about supporting evidence. And this, a lot of this came from interviews with individuals at the Trump organization. Is that correct? Or some of the documents or communications stem from the Trump organization. So this is not actually something that just came out of Cohen's testimony. This is, right. in fact, maybe even predates it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like they they have, you know, supported documentary evidence. I think that the, the interesting component of this is that, you know, the Mueller team has been pretty leak-proof. They haven't, haven't seen a lot of information coming out of uh, from prosecutors there. Most of the stuff you can sort of trace back to defense attorneys. This story, it's a little bit tougher to do that. And that doesn't mean that it's the Mueller team. It, you know, they, I think that they said law enforcement officials, right? So that could be a broader community outside of the Mueller team who's sort of read in on this information. Um, but I still think that this is one of the situations where, you know, all the, uh, there are all these allegations about leaks and it's actually been pretty rare. This is a circumstance where it seems like there's some sort of information that doesn't have a clear, you know, isn't clearly res- coming out of the some of the defense teams sort of caught up in this. And so, you know, the uh, House Intelligence Committee chairman, Adam Mm -hmm. Schiff, Mm -hmm. uh, he already tweeted shortly after the report came out that this would be, uh, you know, one of the most serious allegations yet Mm -hmm. um, and that the House Democrats intend to act on it. So what next? I mean, are we now at the point where they're going to demand maybe not a final report from Mueller, but more information um, because at this point it's going to look highly suspect for Congress not to do anything right uh, in response the more you get these leaks especially this one which as you mentioned if true would be evidence of obstruction of justice right I mean how does that process now play out yeah I mean what's interesting here is this is like something that the nominee for attorney general Bill Barr directly testified that would be a crime for the <laughs> president to commit. So he's kind of locked in a little bit there, um, even if he, you know, when he's, con- it seems like he's going to be confirmed. Um, there's still a lot of question about that final Mueller report, and a lot of um, uh, issues were raised at, during um, Barr's uh, confirmation hearing earlier this week, where he sort of talked about some of the special counsel regulations and saying that he, under his belief, that you know that was going to be essentially a private document, the final Mueller report but that he would try to be transparent and he would try to write his own report that he could issue and then could go out to Congress. Um, so I don't know how that's all going to play out. I mean, but it seems like that, you know, members of Congress certainly um, on the House side are very interested in what's going to happen next with this and getting more supporting documentation for if this is true that, you know, 
Cohen was directed by the president in July, which would be sort of this blockbuster, um, you know, revelation. And Michael Cohen is slated to testify before Congress yes, in early public, February. right? Yeah. This is going to be public. I mean, is, I can't even imagine, begin to imagine what this is going to look like. It's going to be, yeah, um, get your seats now. Um, yeah, and this isn't even the only <clears throat> remarkable uh, story that came out about Cohen yesterday. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was another story um, that had to do with um, money paid toward manipulating poll numbers in yeah. Trump's favor. Oh my favor. gosh, that was only 24 hours ago. That was, yes. that was yesterday morning. Yeah, and the uh, <laughs> the secret, uh, the sock puppet account, like women for Cohen. Oh yes, can we just talk for a moment? Because we actually meant to bring that up mm-hmm. with uh, Julie Grace Brefke, who was here before the break. Women for Cohen. Mm-hmm. Can you just, what is women for Cohen? So essentially, he <laughs> met some guy from Liberty University who had like a startup, and they were manipulating online polls, which, you know, never trust online polls is the lesson here that you should have already known. <laughs> But also this person apparently got a friend of theirs to set up this like sort of fake account of like supposedly being like women, like, you know, admiring uh, Michael Cohen, um, like women for Cohen or something. Like Man Crush Monday. Yeah. Like, or, yeah, I think they literally use that hashtag. Um, and it was like they called him like a pit bull, like sexy, oh. all this other. Yeah. Lots of lots of good stuff. Uh. There. Like there have been so many embarrassing <laughs> stories about Michael Cohen and. He's acted in ways that have brought shame upon his family and the country and all of that. But none of them are as cringy or as bad or just give me chills more than this story. Like putting together your own fake fan club. To talk about how hot you are and what a great father you are. And, uh, and I think it was paid for with campaign money, it which was. is even the best. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, but then he it owned, was. and then when it comes to that firm that he hired to manipulate polling in Trump's favor, mm. apparently he paid them like a fraction of the money. In a bag. And then he gave them like a belt that yeah. belonged to some Brazilian yeah. fighting Yeah, hell yeah. Camp. Just like... <laughs> I mean, what? Real Trump Throw hours. Throw on eBay. Is Real thing. Trump <laughs> hours. Yeah. But then, you learned from Trump. But then filed for and received like a $50,000 reimbursement from like the Trump organization or yeah. Trump. I mean, this is like crazy town. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you know, Trump only hires the best people as mm-hmm. we know, including Michael Cohen. Um, there's just so much you could say about Michael Cohen. And I, I just, but, but, you know, obviously the, the point is, um, you know, now we have, what could very well be the smoking gun? Yeah, at least when it comes to obstruction of justice. Yeah, I mean the Trump Tower project in Moscow was within of itself a, a pretty significant deal. Yeah. The fact that these negotiations went on until June of 2016, not January, essentially when Trump had already clinched the nomination, mm-hmm. and now we know that he, according at least to this report, mm-hmm. apparently directed Cohen to lie. Yeah, um, and the, the, we was talking earlier about how with the hush money that Cohen paid to. Stormy Daniels and and also the separate payment that's made to Karen McDougal. Mm-hmm. You know, the National Enquirer was part of the catch and kill of her story alleging mm-hmm. an affair with the president. He's been involved in a lot of things. I mean, he's things. been involved in a lot of things. He did a lot of crimes. I mean, <laughs> but what and, and we found out that the president knew about those payments too, and and that in not just Cohen, but investigators have also asserted that Trump directed Cohen to make those payments. Yeah. So as in, with the intention of influencing the no, election. I, well, that, let's be clear. It was individual one. Individual one. Who later? It could have been any president who was elected in 2016. No, we but then know. they end, in, uh, didn't they identify individual one as the president in those sentencing memos? 
Uh, I think that was the first that... time that they then said they actually then did identify individual. Well, I, I still I, don't I, know if they used the name. I still think they were like, you know, who was later elected president yes, or something yes. like that. Yes, Well, who was right. later elected president? <laughs> right. <is Yeah>. basically, <laughs> I think now, I mean, now we know in case you had any doubts. Right. But, but, the, but the reason they brought that up is because Republicans were, were saying about that. I mean, again, there's always a set of rules for Trump and then everyone else. Yeah. And, you know, if it had been anyone other than Trump, it would have been already grounds for impeachment. But they sort of said, well, he wasn't president. Yeah. You know, like we've all violated campaign finance law. And they're sort of hiding. <laughs> Who, <has> <laughs> Who amongst us? They were sort of. Yeah. But they were hiding behind the fact that he was a candidate, that, that this happened before he stepped foot in the Oval Office. Right. I mean, this. This one, with respect to directing Cohen to lie to Congress, mm-hmm. I mean, this he did from his perch at the White House. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is also to commit an act of perjury before right. the body that's tasked with oversight of the executive branch. Right. Yeah, it's significant. I mean, that hearing is going to I think that hearing is going to be really fascinating. And it's also going to be this like complete like it'll be like the ultimate crux of like. Uh, Michael Cohen's conversion to this resistance hero, which is going to be <laughs> hilarious, right? We saw that with like James Comey last time, where it's like this, like you know, died in the wool Republican right. who's been like you know this conservative all his life is suddenly like yeah, and like who like literally was blamed for you know the election of Donald Trump because of that press conference that he heard with Hillary. Then we have this, you know, suddenly he's testifying on the Hill, and everyone's like, "Go right. Comey!" Like you know, right. get him down. <laughs> I feel like there's a little less "Go Cohen." Yeah, I mean a little, a little, less. A little less, but well, I mean there's, multiple there's crimes. an attempt at that. Very like, right? It's like he's gonna like, now he's gonna stand up and tell the truth. Right. Like, well, now will... he's being seen as you know truthful. Right. Even... He's still gonna get a book deal out of this. Let's be honest. Oh my God. I mean, come on. Right. Hundred percent. All the money that he's lost in legal fees, and he's also going to spend some time behind bars, will be recuperated with his massive book deal. Yeah, and then his eventual money. contributorship at one of the major networks. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. There's gonna be. No, a he's big... gonna get a TV show on MSNBC. <laughs> There's the resistance a, hour. I mean, John Dean is on all the time. Like, on, yeah. like, right? I mean, yeah, that's he's like a yeah. He's I've yeah. He's on TV all the time. Um, so that'll be him. And you know, it'll be talking thirty years from now, talking about the next <laughs> major controversy. But I think that, about you know, the next Nixon Trump. Yeah, whoever. presidential historian. Michael yeah, Cohen. it's just yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, what's also going to be interesting is so there's this pattern with like if you send politicians to prison, they become big prison reformers, right? Mm. So like, I mean, it's. It's like dead, like any politician who goes to prison, they're always like, yeah, we really need to reform the prison system afterwards after they've experienced it themselves. It'll be interesting to see after Cohen's stint, you know, what kind of uh, what kind of uh, organization he's going to join up with to talk about how we're going to need to reform uh, the prison system and maybe, you know, get on board with, uh, you know, some sentencing changes and whatnot. It should be interesting. Uh, it should be interesting, yeah. especially if it's to his benefit. Um, yeah. You know, it, you mentioned while you were talking about um, the obstruction of just in, justice question William Barr, the yeah. president's nominee for attorney general, and he was directly asked about the very uh, crime that Cohen has been accused of, but also that now the president is being accused of, mm-hmm. which was part of the articles for impeachment against Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was number one. It was, it like was right number one. It, was right it up, happened to be number right one. Right up there. Right up there. Um, so where does this leave um, who is likely to be the next attorney general. I mean, Senate, the Senate is still controlled by Republicans. So whatever co- concerns Democrats might have about Barr, he'll have, you know, he'll meet a 51 vote threshold yeah. in the Senate. So where does this now leave him and the work that lies ahead? Huh. Um, good question. I think that he did it. I mean, so the, the big question is whether or not he'll have to recuse. I think that 
you know, we look at the current acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, whose, you know, appointment is of some legal um, <laughs> A little concern. controversial. Yeah, a little controversial. Um, it's certainly unprecedented um, yeah. in the entire history not illegal, of yeah. the Justice Department, if not na- and, and nation. Um, but I, he basically said that he basically disobeyed or, like, just didn't listen to what the career ethics officials were going to advise in terms of his recusal because he had come out with all these public statements that, you know, sort of... Um, you know, we're against the Mueller probe. So this is going to be an interesting question about whether or not uh, sort of Bill Barr's legal memo, 19-page legal memo that he sent to Trump's legal team, he sent to the Justice Department, um, sort of laying out why he thought that, you know, a component of this was essentially bull, um, is going to, like, play a factor in there. And it'll be interesting to see what the actual career officials are going to say, whether or not that's something that they think that, you know, he needs to back away from. Um so I, it seems like he, he was committed to at least listening to what they said or like asking them for their advice. But I really doubt that he's going to actually end up recusing because right. it just seems like that. I mean, that was what I mean, that's how we sort of got in this whole situation. Right. Jeff Sessions recused. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you go down the line. This is right. this is where we are today. That's the reason there's a special counsel. That's the reason he's so, you know, Jeff Sessions was fired. That's the reason he's so angry with Rod Rosenstein, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's interesting because that was one of the causes uh, of concern for Democrats and other, you know, sort of ethics watchdogs mm-hmm. that Barr wouldn't commit to following Justice Department guidelines on recusal. Mm-hmm. And then another separate um, debate, which I suspect will play out for a long time to come, was the extent to which he would make the Mueller report, the eventual Mueller report, public. Right. Um, and he seemed to still sort of imply that he believed there was some degree of executive privilege that could be invoked Mm -hmm. by the president. Um, But at the same time, he said he told, and you you have this piece that you wrote uh, when he testified a couple of days ago Mm -hmm. before uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, that he told the president directly that Mueller was a straight shooter Mm -hmm. who would not lead a witch hunt. Mm -hmm. He repeatedly talked about his friendship, his longstanding friendship They've like been to each other's kids' weddings Mueller. and stuff, and yeah. Do you think the president was caught off guard um, by um, William Barr and his background? I mean, you know, he sort of raised eyebrows for writing, you know, a memo essentially, um, you know, sort of questioning. Uh, I think at least whether or not Mueller would be able to make the case for mm-hmm. obstruction of justice against the president, and also, you know, he had told the New York Times that he he seemed to think that it was more to investigate in terms of Hillary Clinton and the uranium deal while she was secretary of state than collusion between Trump campaign Moscow. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, the White House saw that and said, this is our guy. Mm -hmm. But then you see this testimony and he seemed a lot more old school Mm -hmm. than I think people or maybe even this president would have anticipated. Yeah. I mean, there's I think there's definitely a divide uh, amongst Democrats because, you know, in some ways, Barr is probably amongst the better candidates that you could have gotten coming out of, you know, who Trump was going to nominate. And you know, he's sort of this, I mean, he was, you know, he's a very law and order guy. He was sort of, you know, early, he fits right in with the early um, 1990s, just a sort of Jeff Sessions, you know, his entire belief system was built in the 1980s. This is like William Barr, sort of the same thing, early 90s. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. I think that that's, uh, I think that he has a lot of, uh, you know, beliefs that go against what Democrats think, but at the same time, he does sort of have that sort of, you know, he, people, he's going to probably follow the rules for the most part, right? He's not, they don't think necessarily that he's just this like guy who's sort of in the tank necessarily, um, for Trump, although that memo was very concerning to a lot of 
Democrats about, you know, why it, I still don't think the question of why he really wrote it was really answered. I mean, he, he just sort of had a lot of time on his hands to sit around and write a 19 page memo and, you know, just lay it out all out there. And has he written other memos about other, you know, various legal concerns? Eh, you know, not really. I mean, it is something that occasionally that um, former attorneys general and deputies attorney general do, but it was still a little unusual. Um, what we did learn in that hearing was that it actually emerged, you know, it came actually he had lunch with Rod Rosenstein and he said that Rod was just like, you know, straight face and didn't react at all when he sort of um, criticized, um, you know, the, the that aspect of it. But I mean, on the other hand, even that idea of that lunch meeting would be like a huge controversy in any other administration. If like this sort of guy who's loosely affiliated with Trump, who was considered to be on the legal team, then went and met with the acting attorney general right. for who's in charge of the investigation. That's like a tarmac meeting, right? It was right. a whole lunch. And then it was actually nominated a pretty to be lunch. the next attorney general. And then general. it's nominated to be the next attorney general. I mean, even right. his meeting <clears throat> with the president where the president asked him yeah. about Mueller mm-hmm. uh, seems, if it were again, I think these are all these questions that right. are so much further down the line because there's so much before us. And, you know, you mentioned that meeting with Rosenstein where he raised concerns mm-hmm. about the obstruction of justice component of the investigation. Has he really opened up about why? I mean, I think that, you know, it is a kind of a tight community. I think that these a lot of these guys are all friends, right? I don't think it's that much of a stretch that they would just be having lunch. I don't know if it was about that subject. It was just kind of like, you know, probably here's the thing is Barr is representing is a private attorney. It makes sense to have a good relationship with the deputy attorney general, right? So, But why was he why is he why is he concerned with the obstruction of justice component of the investigation? I think that so this was after the like it was the idea that he was fo- that Mueller was maybe focusing on the firing of uh, Comey. Um, I think that that's the component that he was sort of worried about, and the idea that the president does have the ability to fire the you know the uh, FBI director if he wants. And I think that the problem is here, right? The memo that Rosenstein wrote that laid out this case uh, for why you should fire. Uh, Comey um, is all based on this idea that, you know, Comey didn't treat Hillary Clinton correctly, um, so, which is hilarious. And the, yeah. the, it's like the most uh, like overlooked part <laughs> yeah. of the whole thing. Right. Cause yeah. It's also the funniest. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's but just... like the idea that like, I mean, all right, so here's what you got to say, right? In order for this to be legally justified, you have to go along with this. Um, and. Of course, Trump couldn't do that. Like, right? If you were like, yeah, I was what I said during the campaign. I take that all back. Um, yeah, it was really there. I, I mean, I really, I really had an unfair advantage in that election. It's, it's nuts. I mean, yeah. no one for a moment buys that that was actually the rationale. Right. There's, and- by the way, uh, I, I, I always mention this, and I probably shouldn't, but uh, Frontline has a great podcast, and they did a, a whole episode, a whole series about how that came to be and it's even way sillier than we have time to discuss right now like the way that it came about and the way that they use that uh as the excuse is just so insane yeah. i mean he, he he was i seems concerned more so about the comey firing being the rationale for you know whether or not the president obstructed justice mm-hmm. but as we know there's so much more there's the infamous trump tower meeting in june 2016 and mm-hmm. The president's role in dictating a highly misleading statement about the nature of that meeting. Yes. Um, and now there's this, that mm-hmm. he apparently directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. So mm-hmm. obviously, um, it's there's a lot there. There's a lot more yeah. there than the Comey firing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even Michael Flynn, uh, okay. yep. you know, we almost forget that the president actually stood by him knowing that he had lied to the vice president. Mm-hmm. It was only when that became public 
I think that was a component of Barr's mm-hmm. argument too. Is that it was like it's basically the idea is that, and there is this this strain of belief within um, sort of the DOJ community, mostly amongst former Republicans and conservatives, is that you know the, those rules are sort of the rules that um, about the relationship between the White House and the Justice Department sort of apply to the Justice Department, right? It's on the Justice Department to hold hold that up. It's not on the White House to you know not try to interfere with things, which I don't, I don't know. That doesn't make a ton of sense. You would think that, you know, if this, it shouldn't just be like the Justice Department playing defense all the time. It should be this like, you know, relationship that respects these, these rules that go back and forth. Um, but that's, is sort of a belief system that, you know, those are, I mean, they are DOJ regulations, right? They're not White House regulations. So, you know, where do things stand in terms of the Mueller investigation? Um, I mean, because you keep having this narrative put out there in part by the president's legal team, in part by the media, that this investigation seems like it's wrapping up. Mm-hmm. You know, a report is imminent. And then something happens, like Mueller um, not being yet ready to move on to sentencing for Rick Gates, mm-hmm. Paul Manafort's uh, former deputy on the campaign, mm-hmm. essentially kicking that down the road for 60 days, I think. Yeah. So so where 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 do things stand in ter- as, as as insofar as we know with the investigation and is there any sign that, that there might be a report in, anytime soon? Yeah, I mean they and then the judge sort of kicking the can down the road on Flynn too. Don't forget about yeah. that one. Um, yeah, I think that I think that it's certainly there's indications certainly that the report were in the stages of you know beginning of the end essentially. Um, but we don't know a ton about really this report. I think there's this assumption that they are working on, you know, some sort of report, and I think that's true. Um, the real indication, I think, is when we'll get is when there's some sort of draft sent to um, Trump's team, and I expect we'll get, you know, either obviously leaks about it being um, completed, probably, you know, trying to head off some of that'll give them a jump start essentially on um, trying to combat this publicly, which is really all this is going to be about as a PR. Mm. campaign because you know if we if the decision is made that you can't indict the sitting president which i think based on um office of legal counsel precedent is probably going to be the um belief that the Mueller team sort of goes with then it's basically going to come down to a pr campaign about whether or not you know how this is going to impact the president politically whether it's enough to convince a few republican senators um to go along with impeachment which i think is a very 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 high bar Still. I mean, a PR campaign <clears throat> likely led by what Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he seems to. Have made I mean, that's his job. He's I mean, like that's the his face job. of the yeah. president's mm-hmm. legal team, who who now is also just quickly walking back his his. You know, I never. He said he, he never said there was no collusion between yeah. the campaign and Moscow. Right. What? I know. Confused. I know. It's a lot of fun to beat up on Rudy Giuliani. Okay. On the other time, it's like he. It's it's all about sowing chaos. Know, questions, right? So it can't be just like if this report just dropped and you and and you know you're to read it, like it's probably going to be pretty. It's likely going to be pretty damning against the president if that come if that report were to come out. But if you sort of see it all, you know, if you sort of lay the groundwork that oh these people are corrupt and blah 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 and everything's who knows what and it's just a lot for people to cu- keep up with. I have trouble keeping up with it. Other DOJ reporters have trouble keeping up with you know remembering. Wait, when did this happen? What happened? Okay, what's next? It's a lot for the average American to keep up with. So I think that that's sort of what they're counting on is that it's just like, who who knows? You can't figure it out. It's it's too complicated. And, and they hope people sort of, you know, forget about it. <laughs> who did you any help or hurt? <laughs> it's so hard to say. <laughs> yeah. I think that I would say overall, I would say hurt. Right. Um, but it's not that bad. It's not. It's also... 
I don't know. But to your point, he's just trying to sow confusion. Right, correct. Which I think he's very effective at sowing confusion. I think it, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think he's sowed so much confusion that he's left himself confused. Correct. He can't follow it. <laughs> by what everything I also don't, yeah, I don't know. Said. Yeah, it's unclear also how read in he is on every little right. development in the actual, mm-hmm. you know, the lawyers who are actually handling things more behind the scenes. Right. Well, always great to have you uh, on the show, Ryan. And uh, we'll obviously have so much more to talk about. I'm sure you'll be back given... This investigation is going nowhere, and it's actually just getting interesting, or more interesting. Every time we say that, then there's another bombshell, so we'll have to wait and see. But Ryan Riley, of course, is a senior justice reporter at HuffPost. Follow him on Twitter at Ryan J. Riley. Read his work at HuffPost. We're going to take a short break, so stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Friday morning. I always like to save the best for last. That's what I say. And so my friend, Pema Levy, is here with us, who's also a great politics reporter for Mother Jones. Good morning, Pema. Good morning. And with all due respect to my friend, Ryan Riley, who's also great, but I'm very excited to have you uh, here for our last segment Um In part because you've also been covering, among the many uh, happenings in Washington, the burgeoning race for 2020. Yes, indeed. Which we haven't actually talked about this morning because, you know, there was like a minor report about Trump telling Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. Just, you know, just a little suborning perjury for you this morning. (laughs) A little casual uh, obstruction of justice, uh, or at least allegations of obstruction of justice. Um, to to close out our week, and meanwhile the government is still shut down for, and now it's day twenty eight, so we're coming up on almost a month, and um, so that you know, those is a few of the things that have been happening, uh, <laughs> behind the scenes, and um, meanwhile you now have several Democrats who have either formally launched their presidential campaigns or, you know created these exploratory committees. Sometimes there's sort of an exploring whether to have an exploratory <laughs> committee. <laughs> A little bit of that. Um, but, uh, you know, the exploratory committees... Um, are pretty much the first major step toward launching a formal campaign. You still have to file with the FEC and that, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, she launched her exploratory committee this week. Um, We know Elizabeth Warren obviously was first out the gate. Mm -hmm. We're expecting uh, senators Cory Booker of New Jersey and Kamala Harris of California to also, it seems like, launch an exploratory committee, if not outright launch a campaign. And then you have... Julian Castro, the former housing secretary under Obama, and Tulsi Gabbard, a somewhat controversial congresswoman from Hawaii. Yeah. Um, and then you have other people that I feel bad saying we, we aren't household names, um, but an entrepreneur. And um, who is John Delaney also? Yes, yes. A congressman from there. <laughs> a congress- did you resign? Actually? Yeah, I know. I think he, maybe he did. <laughs> yeah, in order to. We don't even know. Yeah. Poor guy was the first guy at his age yeah, running for president. Was. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that obviously a lot of the uh, attention, at least, you know, whether right right or wrong, is on some of these people who we've been watching for years who are now finally in the mix. And you've been covering them. Um, yeah. And first and foremost, I'm interested in your piece. Of, you have two stories here. One is about Tulsi Gabbard. One's about Julian Castro. And so first, let's talk about Tulsi Gabbard. You, is Tulsi Gabbard is running for president. Can she take her ties? Can she shake her ties to dictators and nationalists? Um, tell us a little bit about Tulsi Gabbard, who I think is 
certainly raised eyebrows for her views on foreign policy. Yeah, absolutely. And I even think it's not so much foreign policy, but the way in which she seems to have expressed sympathy and solidarity with some really bad actors, uh, namely Bashar al-Assad here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, on the one hand, you know, she sort of was a progressive rising star. She supported Bernie Sanders. um, And so she, I think, you know, sort of won over a a lot of the progressive base, uh, you know, by speaking out on his behalf back in 2016. Um, And then in 2017, well, right after the election, first of all, she met with Donald Trump, right? So uh, she, you know, had a conversation with Steve Bannon. They seemed to align on foreign policy. Uh, She uh, then took this sort of trip to Syria without (laughs) telling uh, the government, really, uh, it was paid for by some really shady characters, basically people that are very pro-Assad. She called it like a fact-finding mission, and she said these people were like peace advocates, but they're part of a very militant uh, party based in Lebanon. Um, and then she came back and basically started saying, you know, I don't know if these chemical weapons attacks are really Assad. There's blame to go around. You know, we shouldn't be intervening here. And certainly foreign policy around something like Syria is very difficult. Um, but she sort of was taking the side of someone who is a violent dictator who mm. used chemical weapons right. on his own people. Uh, it's and, the um, conclusion, since she cast doubt on whether or not he was behind these chemical weapons attacks, it's right. the conclusion of not just the U.S. intelligence community, but also the intelligence communities of key NATO allies, including France, including the United Kingdom, including Germany, only because sometimes, you know, there are some who say, well, you know, we went into Iraq on faulty uh, intelligence of uh, weapons of mass destruction, but and that was led by the U.S. specifically, and other governments were not putting forward intelligence to support. They just simply, because of Article 5 under NATO and you know the idea that attack on the U.S. was attack on all allies, sort of used that as a rationale to then go into Iraq um, along with the United States versus Syria, where they all have yeah. themselves said, and in fact at times been the ones to lead a coalition against Assad. It's not just that this is, you know, the U.S. repeating the mistakes of the Iraq war. I mean, I think what's really a shame about one of the many things that is a shame about the Iraq war and about the fact that the U.S. did lie about the existence of weapons of mass destruction is that we have a recent example of the U.S. lying in order to get us into a war. And that means that anytime anyone else wants to cast doubt on our intelligence, they can just bring that up. Right. And, and it is powerful because we that was re- pretty recent and that did happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that intelligence about Assad is not right. And Tulsi Gabbard met with um, then President-elect Trump during the transition. That raised eyebrows. You write about her ties to Hindu nationalists. She's a big supporter of Modi, who is essentially a Trumpian figure, but in India. Absolutely. Um, he has a history of um, violence against Muslims uh, and so she has this history of um, intolerances. Yeah. And it's uh, she also, uh, you know, about a decade ago was um, an anti-gay activist as well. And released a video that we actually um, we have some sound from where she issued an apology this yeah. week. Yeah. Many years ago, I apologized for my words and more importantly, for the negative impact that they had. I sincerely repeat my apology today. I'm deeply sorry for having said them. And she wasn't just anti-same-sex marriage, which is a lot of politicians. She was, she made comments 
that were homophobic um, and actually, I mean, they were very extreme in nature. I think you may have done more research around exactly what she said. Yeah, exactly. It was very much the sort of there's a like insidious homosexual agenda and these homosexual extremists and that, you know, the kind of language um, that that is really painful to, to that community. And um yeah, she's she's walked it back. You know, that, that, yeah, I don't think you can run as a Democrat <laughs> no. and not have, you know, done a 180 on that stuff. But there's, you know, on the one hand, she is progressive on a lot of issues um, and right. she seems to have like Economic walked away from some of this. Such, yeah. On the other hand, there's a lot of stuff going on with her. And I have to say, I don't I don't know what happens when you get to the debate stage and you, you know, try and, and defend that stuff. I'm not sure that there's quite an appetite or a, a base for that exactly, but... You know, I guess we'll see. I think she's a fascinating character, uh, for better or worse, right? But I think that the moment that she... Because these types of comments and her stances on LGBTQ issues in the past are not one of those things that I think a lot of people know about. And again, like the second that she gets to a debate stage and someone brings that up, deal killer. Immediate deal killer. Because I just think that like you cannot be a progressive or call yourself a progressive, and have gone as far as she did on the homophobia. I I think, right, and I think the other issue is, like, if it was, like, Tulsi Gabbard against Trump, I think people would forgive her. But there's such an enormous field that it's so easy to just have something where you're like, well, I don't like this one little thing, so I can pick from one of the 50 other people who are running. What void does she fill the Democrats will have to get okay with her homophobia. I mean, she I think, doesn't. I think, she doesn't. I think the one niche here would be I'm very anti-interventionist. You know, sure. Obama said he was, but I'm really the anti-interventionist. The problem is that it goes along with having to cozy up to Assad or nationalists yeah. in India. Uh, and then you sort of get into territory that I think is, again, troubling. Right. And a lot of the, you know anti-Muslim comments, um, you know, all of this kind of comes at a time when the whole case that Democrats are making against Trump is that, you know, he's overseeing this assault on civil rights and really obviously targeted Muslims and minorities, religious minorities. And of course, you know, his own, um, you know, ways of undermining a lot of the reforms around LGBTQ communities. I mean, a lot of what she has said that's problematic and the affinity for dictators. Uh, that is sort of all like central to the Democratic message against Trump. Yeah, she has a Trumpian unf- side. Right, she has a Trumpian side. And so it's it's even more um, of a paradox, I think. Um, and there are, as you note, progressives who are trying to unseat her. Uh, and they they came right. short. They didn't really, you know, they, they came short in their last attempt just now in the 2018 midterms. Um, they did have a primary challenger against her, but I don't think it was as organized as it's going to be um, moving forward, uh, you you also write about Julian Castro, uh, who did not do an exploratory committee. He just kicked off a no, campaign. No, he did. Oh, he did an exploratory Yeah, he launched committee. it back in December. He was ahead of the curve. Ah, okay. Because But he's actually kicked off his yes. formal campaign yes. with an announcement in San Antonio. So he's yeah. out there. He's, he's doing he, it. He's out, he's out <laughs> there. And, you know, he is, as you know, the most serious Latino presidential contender for Democrats. Yeah. Um, and... You write, you ask if he can mobilize Latino voters. Um, what is it, I guess where you you know 
and I think it's you rightly note there's no evidence that Latinos will embrace him just because he's Latino. And I think right. when people make that assumption, it's obviously condescending to these communities to suggest that that's the only reason that they would vote for someone, that they don't have the same concerns that every other American has. But what have you sort of found as you reported out that piece? Yeah, I, I think on the one hand, that's very true. You, you know, you can't just expect that, you know, a, a Latino will come along or a black person will come along or a woman will come along and then all of those people in that group will vote for them. That That's not how it works. Right. Um, but I think that on the one hand, you know, one of the things that I noted is when, when he announced, uh, I think it was last Saturday, um, you know, this came two days after Trump had been a few miles from his hometown mm. on the border, you know, raging about, uh, you know, scary criminals coming across the border. You know, this is um, someone who before that had announced, you know, Trump had announced, you know, basically that we are doing this shutdown because of the scary criminals coming from Mexico. And, you know, he has another story to that, which is my grandmother crossed that border as a child and made a better life for me. And I'm and I'm the success story. Like, you know, Trump has one version of the story and it's it's, you know, that you're all scary and you're criminals and you shouldn't be here. And I have another version, which is that we're really hardworking and we're smart and we contribute to society. And I think that, you know, the people I talked to basically said for the Latino community and for everyone, but particularly for Latinos, that's like the story about yourself that you like the most. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that you want the world to see. And especially at a time when there is the opposite message coming from the White House, it's really it can be really meaningful to see that message if he is successful in getting it out and putting it out there. Right. And, you know, he is someone who was the mayor of San Antonio and then went on to serve as the housing secretary under President Obama. His twin brother, Joaquin Castro, is a Democratic member of Congress. So, you know, very much as you note, that kind of success story that is the exact foil to uh, the president who happens to be putting immigration front and center. So, you feel, do you feel like that could very also, much also be a big part of his platform is immigration, the debate that this country is very actively engaged in and, and you know, what immigration law should look like? Yeah, I don't think that he'll be able to escape it um, because of the fact that he is that foil for what's going on nationally. I mean, this is someone who, ironically, their bread and butter has not been immigration policy, right? I mean, they've been a, a mayor. That's local issues. That's economic issues. They've been a housing secretary. Again, that's housing. Um, you know, it's not directly immigration issues. But I think in this context, you know, he's sort of outlining that sort of typical, very progressive agenda that a lot of the Democrats are right now. You know, universal health care, for example, Green New Deal. Um, but he, I don't think he can escape um, the immigration issue. Uh, and I think that he will be able to talk about it in a particular way that the other candidates can't by virtue of the fact that, again, he can say, my grandmother was a seven-year-old orphan and walked across the border, mm-hmm. right? And that's why I'm here. Uh, and so so he has that story, and I think that he can't, you know, run away from it. He can't just run on it, but he, right. he can't run away from it. My either. biggest takeaway from his announcement was this quote, which means, well, I'll read it. Today, we live in a world in which brain power is the new currency of success, end quote which is absolute pure drivel. It means absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I think that if there's a lesson that Democrats should learn from the midterms, it's that the issues do matter. Yeah. He hasn't really come out and said anything about Medicare for all. He does seem to have a a, 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 a very advanced knowledge of immigration law and how that works. We are in a moment where I think people care about that. But 
to use just sort of like warmed over Clintonism from the 1990s, which is what that quote sounds very much like. I don't think it's going to get I don't think it's going to get any Democrat very far in this primary. Hasn't he? He has endorsed Medicare for all, hasn't he? I, I think so. I don't think I don't know if he but said the word like quite, exactly, but yeah, he's pretty wishy washy about and he, it. One thing he did, and I think he talked about college affordability, but for two years. But didn't it's necessarily come out in favor of you know debt free college or you know a lot of some of the proposals you've seen from the more progressive wing. I mean, I think there will be this very interesting uh, question as to what issues are going to be a litmus test for Democrats. Now, obviously, Medicare for all, um, without question, seems to be one of them, and most of the contenders have signed on: Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, Bernie obviously was the architect of the bill in this in the in the Senate. Um, and then there's uh, you know I think even Beto O'Rourke. To embrace Medicare for all. Not, no, no. Yeah. Not, not yet. Oh, yeah. okay. No. Yeah. So then there'll be the Beto Rorks <laughs> and Joe Bidens potentially, um, who might be a little bit more um, inclined to hold on to that centrist wing if it exists. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm curious I mean, I think, to ask you I think, if there is a centrist wing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think there probably will be a slightly more centrist group. Um, you know, I think if, if Amy Klobuchar runs, she'll probably inhabit that a little bit. Um, Biden will have sort of that populist thing, but also a history of centrism. So yeah. that that will be there. I, I think the thing about Castro that like is going to be a problem with a lot of people um, is that when you have a crowded field, you have to be like, this is why I'm the one. This mm-hmm. is why I'm running now. Right. Like Castro could run for Senate in 2020. Right. There's a Senate seat up in Texas in 2020. Mm-hmm. He could do that. He could run for something else. Or could have. He could go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, he could have in 2018. Yeah. He could go back to practicing law. Yeah. Um, but instead, he decided to run for president. And so I think you, you know, the challenge that everyone talks about is like you have to explain to people why you and why you're doing it. And I, I do agree with Peter, like a sentence like, you know, brain power is the currency. New currency. Of- <laughs> yeah. Like, that doesn't what really does that explain. Just tell me what that means. I know. What does that even just tell mean? me what that means. Yeah. Also, isn't it? I thought the whole thing about Trump was that you could just fail up if you were rich. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So I'm not yeah. sure that that's right. It's that's almost right. like the Trump is the If I understand that, that quote, statement. and I'm not sure that I do, <laughs> then the president of the United States is like a direct contradiction to that quote. But it is interesting that, you know, you're going to have a very quiet field, and so people will need to find a way to distinguish themselves. And so for Cory Booker, it might be criminal justice. And for Kamala Harris, it might be also like work around immigrants' rights and her work as a prosecutor and maybe also criminal justice. Yeah, I mean, criminal I think that's a bit diff- of a problem for her. That's in a little California. bit of a problem. No, I don't think she wants to talk about but it immigrant, So I think for her, it has more to do with immigrants, I mean, I think, um, like, you know, uh, fighting like a lot of the Trump administration agenda, not so much the criminal justice piece. But I, everyone needs to find something. For Kirsten so Gillibrand, it's sexual harassment and women, equal, gender I think, equality. I think that's why Elizabeth Warren feels like the strongest candidate to me right now, because she's like very clear and everyone knows her and her thing has been her thing for like 50 years and she hasn't deviated from it. And it's about... The, the, the fact that the system is rigged and she's going to fix it, right? right? And that's it's very clear that that is why she's running. I think Kirsten Gillibrand is doing a better job than most because she's saying, I'm here for women and families. Right. I'm here for, you know, I'm here in that vein as a woman to look after, you know, this whole, these set of issues um, that haven't been fixed yet. Right. And with Kirsten Gillibrand, what's interesting, I was, I was writing about her this week, um, is that First and foremost, she's not someone who just attached herself to the Me Too bandwagon. Her career's work has been around you know, pushing for, you know, 
economic, you know, women's economic proposals, uh, you know, pay equity, and then combating sexual assault in the military and on college campuses. You know, she had that book in 2014 talking about her own experience with sexual harassment back when no one was really talking about it. In fact, she got backlash for for speaking openly about how some of her male colleagues, you know, you know, made comments that were clearly sexist about her weight, about her physical appearance. But um, at the same time, and so you know, on the one hand, the world has finally caught up with her. On the other hand, there's still this backlash to her role in um, being first to call for the resignation of Al Franken, which sort of opened up the floodgates. Now, my reporting, I, you know, what I heard is it's a lot of it exists among wealthy donors, but also among some progressives who feel like Al Franken was treated unfairly, not because they felt like they shouldn't take seriously the allegations against him, but because there was no investigation and he was just forced to resign. So, you know, I guess, how do you see this sort of playing out for Gillibrand? And is it even a fair criticism? Yeah, I think for better or worse, that story or that episode with Franken will come back to her. I've had people mention it to me um, when I talk about it. Uh, I think that what was really hard for people to swallow is that they really liked Al Franken Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they didn't want him to leave. And so I think it elicited this sort of like emotional reaction that maybe it wouldn't if it had been like Senator so-and-so that no one knows about as much. But but Franken was sort of like a darling of the left. And I think that, you know, I don't I don't I think there are some criticisms criticisms from people that, you know, she didn't let an investigation go forward and she just sort of like did this to, you know, to be the person to do it. On the other hand, you know, the pictures of Franken were pretty gross. Yeah. <laughs> and the allegations kept adding up. Right. So, you know, uh but I think that she will have to deal with that in some way. Right. A- and 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 yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that the that issue for her is really interesting. And again, it's really important because it gives her like a narrative for entering the race. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one that's relevant the way that like a middle class squeeze is relevant. People feel it. You know, people are also feel uh, issues of inequality um, around gender right now. But, you know, she has we haven't talked about this. She also has this history of being much more conservative right. um, politically. And there is a little bit of an evolution. And so I think. Um, there will be questions for her, too, you know, in terms of like, yeah, you are ahead on this issue. But is that because you are making up for the fact that you are behind on all these other she went issues from an A rating uh, from the NRA to an F rating? Um, right. You know, and she also actually was very um, much a hawk on immigration. In fact, right. having campaigned uh, for what was a very conservative seat, she unseated a longtime Republican in upstate New York. But campaigned against quote-unquote amnesty um, for, you know, undocumented immigrants who at the time she just referred to as illegal immigrants and um, and then also said that she opposed a proposal for undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. And I think there was quite a bit around there, too. Now, of course, she's a supporter of comprehensive immigration reform. Um, I guess the question becomes who on the stage hasn't evolved on... You know, Bernie dealt with the gun issue a bit in 2016. Obviously, right. Hillary dealt with a number of issues around, you know, having said one thing about trade and then another thing later or climate. And right. so it's, maybe it'll be something that can be neutralized. But some, but it's you're right. I mean, this is there's quite an evolution to be had. Yeah, there, there definitely is. I mean, I think there's something to be said for, you know, for folks getting into the race without much of a history of taking stances on these things. And you can sort of see why, um, you know, on the, but I also think that in this primary Democratic voters, you know, on the one hand, there's all these sort of like litmus tests and, you know, talk of like policy purity and stuff. Um, but I, I'm sort of in the camp that voters are going to be more pragmatic. Right. Um, I think that Democratic voters want to win. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know that there's like, you know, 
one, you know, over, you know, if there's an overwhelming history of, of changing your policies, that's one thing. But I think ultimately, like the purity tests are not going to be quite as important uh, because I think that that people are going to be a little bit pragmatic with their votes. Very quickly, um, Beto O'Rourke, troubling interview with The Washington Post. His answer to a lot of questions on key immigration issues was, I don't know um, what to do about people who oversteer their visas. I don't know what to do about Trump withdrawing troops from Syria. I don't know. Um, this made a lot of head headlines, um, suggesting he might not be ready for prime time, but he's still a breakout star. Um, but a, maybe a cautionary story, or yeah, I I think there's like two ways to read it. Like one, yeah, if you're like about to jump into running for president, you once you've said I'm running for president, <laughs> saying just I saying I don't know is like not great. Um, on the other hand, rule I of think thumb, rule <laughs> of thumb. on the other hand, I. I think that there's a little bit of like refreshingness to be able to say these are really hard issues. Right. <laughs> like, it could actually appeal like, to voters. I don't totally like Syria is going to be really hard to right. figure out. There's never been a good answer. Right. Um, you know, what happens with visa overstays like this should probably be part of a big solution and we don't really know. So I think on some level, like a little bit of humility that these are actually tough questions is good. On the other hand, you, again, you have to know right. why you're running. I mean, to, to, and, and just to wrap up to your point, um, one thing that voters liked about Donald Trump was his candor and that he wasn't giving these very canned political poll tested answers. Uh, Pema Levy, thank you so much for joining us and breaking down the latest 2020. The race is only just beginning. There'll be lots more to follow. Thanks for joining us this morning and stay tuned. We'll be back next week on The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show.